The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi everybody, Andrew Gormley, CEO of Classic Flyers here. If you're interested in classic aviation and you want to get up close and personal to old aircraft and see some of New Zealand's aviation history, come across the Classic Flyers, Jean Batten Drive, Mount Monganui, right on the edge of the airport. You can go for flights in old aeroplanes like Boeing Stearmans and Harvards. There's lots to see. Kids' parties happening here all the time. We have functions and function rooms, business meetings, and a great cafe with excellent coffee. If you'd like to be involved with Classic Flyers, we also have the volunteer groups who do all things from helping out with function work or just on the main hangar floor with visitors and guests or birthday parties, right through to engineers who get involved in restoring some of our wonderful old aircraft assets. Currently at the moment, we've got a Grumman Avenger being restored and a de Havilland single-seat FB5 Vampire. These things are all part of New Zealand's aviation history. It's a great place and it's in a good location. Come and have a visit. Check out the website on www.classicflyersnz.com. Extended. Hi, this is Peter Johnson from Aerospace Radio Station Extended. And we bring you some of Europe's best guests. He's, he's been something of, of an unsung hero of the American space program outside those who are, have made it their business to become aficionados of it. News. <laughs> some people will call you mad. Some people will call you heroes. Uh, uh, and everyone else is probably somewhere in that spectrum. It's, uh, it's an amazing project to, to pull together from literally from scratch. And views. You've got to pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and learn from that experience. And that's not an easy thing to do, Peter, learning from your own failure. So why not give us a listen if you want to hear about warbirds, aviation, and the aerospace industry? Come over and give us a visit. Aviation-extended.co.uk And remember, there's no E at the beginning of Extended. Extended. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. Recently, I had the pleasure to sit down with well-known warbird pilot, John Lamont, when we caught up at Ardmore Airport to do an interview. Yeah, so John, um, tell me about growing up. Did, did you get into aviation as a young fellow? Or? Um... Well, I was, I was born in Belclerth, and we were on a dairy farm, but at the age of not quite five, we shifted to Blenheim. My father was actually a, a builder as well as a farmer. And um, we ended up living just near the um, hospital in Blenheim. Yep. And that was within sight of Omaka. 
And uh, so from that age, really not quite five, I can remember being fascinated by aeroplanes. And um, my father actually built some of the Air Force houses, um, well, was he and his father, built some of the Air Force houses at Woodburn. Okay. And I vaguely recall um, mosquitoes being parked around the back of the airfield. Yep. And the territorials flying Mustangs around the place. Right. right. Do you also remember the um, um, Bristol freighters that started operating across Cook Strait? And um, I know we went out to a, an open day at, at uh, Woodburn where they were showing off this fancy piece of equipment which loaded the pallets off through the nose of the Bristol freighter. So, um, and, you know, I could stand up on tippy toe and just about watch aeroplanes land at Omaka and you know, see them disappear behind the trees and stuff. Um, <laughs> Awesome. And there was there was there was um, a um, oh, I'm trying to think of the name. There's one down at Masterton. A little uh, used to fly over the top of our house nearly every day. Went between a marker and um, and Wellington. Okay. Commuter aircraft. Right. Okay. Yeah. So I was kind of fascinated. And then when we were, I was eight years old, we sh shifted down to um, South Canterbury. Um, and my father was working with another builder who who had his PPL and he had his own aeroplane and uh, he, um, um, he I went up with him a couple of times and he actually bought a chipmunk nice. had that for a while but I never I entered in a, into a, one of those schoolboy competitions at the Canterbury Club and apparently it was useless so <laughs> <laughs> anyway uh, but I joined the Air Force when I was um, not quite 18 okay. as a um, as a radio mechanic. Oh right, okay. So what year was that that you joined? I joined 1963. <coughs> and um, did a uh, um, sort of recruit course at Wigram and then we were sent to Hobsonville for um, a basic engineering course. Um, and yeah, I was well I was well fascinated by aeroplanes, of course, by then. Yeah. Um, and um, then I went back to Wigram, did a 12-month radio mechanics course, and then worked in the radio shop at Wigram okay. for not very long because I applied to go flying. Right, right. And um, one, of the, one of the things I do remember there, they were working in the hangar, they had this um, Spitfire in there, and I actually sat in it. Okay. And it was the one that they put on the pole at the Brevet Club. Right, they were right. getting it ready to go on the pole, and I sat in there and dreamed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So then I started my wings course at Wigram in um, uh, June 1965, okay. and graduated November 66. <clears throat> that was actually a really interesting period in the Air Force because a whole lot of stuff was being replaced with new gear, wasn't it? it was new aircraft. Vic, Sarans, Iroquois. Yep. Sue. Yeah. yeah. It was. So, a good time to become a pilot? Yeah, it was. It was, yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, the wings, we had every 12 months, uh, every six months, there was a new intake of, uh, of flying courses, and there were much bigger courses there. Um, we had, uh, I think we had, well, I think we had 24 pilots started, wow. and the standard sort of uh, chop rate was 50%, yep. and we graduated 12, I think. Okay. Yep. Mm. Yep. 
So how, how long was the um, pilot's course there? Uh, well, it, it was it was 18 months, 18 basically. Months. Yeah. Uh, first six months you didn't fly. It was all ground school, yeah. square bashing in ground school, and then it was 12 months of two phases, the initial, uh, initial phase and the advanced phase. The advanced phase, you kind of uh, finished off your advanced Harvard stuff and, and did the Devon. So you finished with, I think, from memory, about 220 hours. Okay, yep. With multi-engine instrument rating and that sort of thing. So, so the um, the initial phase that was also Harvard. Had they yeah, 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 yeah. So it's the, all the, the Tiger must have gone by then. Oh well, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so that would have been the first aircraft you flew as yeah. a as a yeah. pilot. So yeah. Was that a bit of a bit of a daunting thing as a young fellow getting into it? <laughs> well, yes and no. I mean, there wasn't any. I, I suppose if you if you'd flown something else, but it was the first aeroplane I ever flew, really. Yeah. Um, yeah, they were they were quite daunting. I guess, and um, your average average amount of time to go solo was about 15 hours. Right. Um, <clears throat> and if uh, if you hadn't gone solo by 20, you was under the yeah. pump a bit. Yeah. You know? yeah. yeah. Okay. So, um, do you remember which was the first Harvard that you flew? Is it still around? Yeah, it's actually the one that's in the. Wigram Museum. Ah. My first solo. It was on a different tail number then. I think it was 83. 83. Yeah, 83. Yeah, it's got the. They put a different colour scheme on it. Yes. It was on the pole there for a while. But that was my first solo. Okay. Cool. Yeah. 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 Um, Any particular uh, highlights or or mishaps during the training? No mishaps. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's always highlights. I, w one thing I was going to mention, I think you're probably aware of it, uh, 65, which is here, mm -hmm. you know, Brett's got it. Yeah. Um, uh, when I was a um, uh, radio mechanic, I, mean, I you know, used to do a bit of maintenance on, you know, radio checks and stuff, so I've actually got my signature in the old Ford 700 as a, as a LAC. Right. And then um, it was still there when I was doing my wings course. I flew it on, on my wings course at some stage. Yep. And then several years later, I ended up, well, no, I ended up back there instructing straight after wings course. I yep. flew it then. Yep. And um, and then several years later, I was back at CFS and flew it again then. Oh, right, okay. And then ended up as a part owner of it under the Warbirds. Yeah. So <laughs> we go back a fair way. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Um, no highlights on. The, I mean, uh, it it was it, the course was really intense. I think, mm -hmm. and and uh, I I just I was in heaven, you know, yeah. in a lot of ways. Yeah. You know, but, and um, we had we had some great instructors, um, and uh, yeah, it was it was a good good era when I look back on it. Now, you know. Did you get assigned a specific instructor through each phase, or, or did you basically you do? Yeah. Um, but um, so I started with a guy by the name of John Leaf, who was had been well experienced, and um, but I only had him for about the first thirty hours, and then I was with Jerry Brown, who you may know. Uh, Jerry lives up and he was an ex. Uh, he may be a member of Warburg still. Right. He lives up on the coast, up around Fongaroa Way. Okay. Um, he, he was a. And Jerry was a really, you know, they're both good instructors. Jerry was great. He, um, 
he was one of those guys who never ranted and raved and shouted. And I remember one day I was flying with him and I wasn't doing very well. And he said to me, Lamont, this is PP. And I'm thinking, I'm that thick, I'm thinking, what is PP? <laughs> 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 it was piss poor. <laughs> and that was the harshest thing he ever said to me, you know. Wow. But I felt mortified. <laughs> yeah, no, he was great. I was, I was, um, I must have been okay because I managed to get the, um, what they call it, the Delonge Flying Trophy and the Sword of Honour, which was oh, nice. a bit of a surprise, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. But, um, yeah, and, and I've been really fortunate in being able to keep flying ever since. I don't know if there's, there might be one other guy on our course who maybe still flies occasionally. Yeah. So yeah. you went from there to PDS as an instructor? Yeah, I did, which was really. We, we um, you know, the old way then was at the end of your wings course, you'd, you'd, you'd put in your, your preference of postings. Yeah. And I think I asked for transport, believe it or not. Okay. But um, they decided they couldn't figure out where to send us. And they, they, they sent us on this operational orientation course, they called it, which was quite nice. We just swanned around various squadrons for two months. And had to had a had a go and everything. So, okay. you know, sat in the Canberra and how do we fly of that and a vampire and yeah. and uh, we had sort of a, a few days on each squadron. Okay. And um, even even did a quick trip to Australia and oh, wow. for a night to Newcastle. And um, but um, at the end of that, they then gave us our postings, and mine was back to Wigram as an instructor. <laughs> <laughs> and um, our group captain Mo Moss was the OC flying down there at the time and. He was next wartime but and I think he flew in the I think he flew mosquitoes um Mustangs after the war as well in the series. Yes. Yeah. But he was he had this big deep voice. He said, Oh lad, um we're really short of instructors, uh, uh, we can't release people from the squadrons, but you'll only be here for twelve months, you know. Two and a half years later <laughs> I was <laughs> But it was um it was it was interesting because I was, you know, I was low. I had no experience, but I'd, uh, I was very current on on Harvards and Devons, of course. So yeah. I don't know, it worked okay. You would have known the training process well enough to yeah. be able to pass it on. Is what you just learned as well. Well, you learn all that in CFS. You learn yeah. how to patter all that stuff. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, it was it was good. Cool. And where did you go next? Oh, I was in post choppers. So okay, yeah. went to three squadron and did a. L47 course in the Sioux and um, stayed on that for nearly 12 months I think it was you know with the um, light aircraft flight it was called yeah. and um, they had a big exercise up in um, Malaysia called Bisatu Padu it was the biggest post-war exercise okay. and um, we took two Iroquois in a, in a herc up there but I was on the Sioux and we so there was an army guy and myself went up, um, um, I forget his first name, Harvey. Um, anyway, yeah. we, we shared the flying, and we're, but we were flying, well maybe we did take our own sewer, up, can't recall it. But we were with an Australian recce outfit okay. up right. there, but the, the exercise was uh, nearly six weeks long. Wow. Or five weeks was it? We were up away for two months anyway. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So this is sort of late nineteen sixties at that stage. Uh, that would have been uh, six, probably seventy one. Seventy one. Okay. Seventy. Seventy one. So 70. at this stage, the squadron had 
guys go into Vietnam as well. Through they were starting to go to Vietnam, yeah. and then uh, came back for that. And I went on to went on to Iroquois about seventy, and uh, yeah, we definitely had guys. In fact, there were guys in Vietnam before I even went on to the squadron actually. Yeah. Um, George Oldfield and those guys, Ken Wells, Trevor Butler. Um, they, Trevor and Ken were on the wings course just ahead of me, so okay. you know, they'd gone straight onto helicopters when they first got the, the new machines. Yeah. Yeah. But um, uh, yeah, so I, I went on to Iroquois and was half expecting to get a posting to Vietnam. We, I mean, it was pretty interesting stuff. We used to do these annual exercises at Wairu, and I can remember being in a formation of six Hueys doing trooping, you know, yep. that ally Vietnam style, yep. that sort of thing. <coughs> and then um, they decided to put half a half a squadron of Heracoys in Singapore. And right. I got posted there right. on the yep. 41 squadron, which was much nicer than going to Vietnam. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, we had, um, I think there were three Bristol freighters and three Heracoys um, based at Tenga. So at, with that posting, did you ever have anything to do with the Bristols? Did you ever go on a flight with them? Oh yeah, yeah. We, sort of yeah, mixed we, and matched. Yeah, I did a couple of trips through Vietnam and in night Saigon. Yeah, they they used to do a regular run up there every two weeks. Yeah. But also they did some more extended ones, and I remember going. Oh, Keith Skilling was the skipper. We went. Um, we went to um, Hong Kong by Saigon. Okay. I think actually we went. We went Bangkok, stayed there a night. Yeah, we did. And the next day we came round up into Saigon, refueled, and then through to Hong Kong. Okay. Quite a long day. Yeah. And then we went home in one day. We were up there for a couple of days. Went home one day by Saigon. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I remember sitting in the lying down the nose of the Bristol freighter flying over over Vietnam, looking at all the holes in the ground. You know. Yeah. I did see a B fifty two raid too because they used to put out these artillery warnings saying where the raids were and there was one somewhere up our track we did vert round and they were they were bombing over 88's cloud but you could see them up there these three of them just came along and see the trails and, right. and, okay. uh, mm. Gosh. yeah different era really yeah yeah exactly mm. so you're up in singapore for how long uh two years uh it was um Late 71 to late 73, I think it was. Yeah, it was. Um, I know that the, the Singapore base closed down just before I joined the Air Force. And I joined in 89, I think it closed in 88 or something. Oh, yeah, the, yeah, the, the RNZF element up there. Yes, yeah, 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 oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but the, a lot of the guys who had been up, they said it was a great place to be posted because you got all sorts of extra pay and you got all, oh, yeah. access to all sorts of cheap stuff and all that sort of thing. So was it like they're still back in the 70s? Oh yeah, yeah, probably even more so in a way, you know, because, uh, you know, everything back here was heavily taxed and heavy duty on cars. So there was a deal whereby you could you could buy a car, you know, a new car over there, provided you owned it more than 12 months when you brought it back and you had to keep it for two years before you sold it. Right. Right. So um, everyone would sort of buy an old clanger to keep drive around and until they're New car arrived. Yeah. I bought a, we, we bought a Toyota Celica, which was the first one that came out. Okay. 
and um, yeah, brought it back. So you probably were paying, by the time you landed them back here even, they were probably still only half what they were worth. You know, right. Because of the, yeah, so that was quite a big deal. And you bought all sorts of other stuff. Yeah. Stereo gear was cheap. Yeah. But the, the lifestyle was great because you, you, you were living in mostly, although the first, nearly the first eight or nine months living off base, because there weren't enough base houses, uh, living in, I don't know whether you know Singapore much, but no. Holland Village, which was the uh, vehicle used to, was, a few of us used to live there, um, um, and um, just in semi-detached places. That, they were all paid for, of course, and um, and a vehicle would pick us up each morning, take us out to the airfield, <coughs> which is about half an hour away. Okay. And um, but yeah, you had a an allowance for an armor, which was a, in those days they were all Chinese maids, oh, right. so they would clean the house and do the cooking and look after the kids. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> so yeah, we played rugby up there and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, that was it. Was good fun for sure. And the actual flying, was it sort of uh, a bit different flying in the tropics and the Iroquois, or was it much the same as flying here? Was, was there any difference? Well, we were still, um, no, it was much the same, um, because the army had a whole uh, battalion up there, yep. um, based at Nisun, and uh, we were under what they called the Anzac, the old, the old FIAF had gone, and they formed ANZAC, which was Australia, New Zealand, UK. And they had, um, every six months at least, they had a, I think it was every six months, they had a, a reasonably major exercise where the RAF brought aircraft out at short notice from the UK, the uh, Phantoms by then. Um, they had Shackleton's when we first went to Tingham. Okay. Um, and the Australians had uh, Mirages based up at um, Penang uh, with a detachment permanently at, um, at Tinga and they were right across the other side of the, our, um, our spot on the airfield. Um, uh, yeah, so there was a lot going on. The, the, the Singapore Air Force were forming up and they had hunters um, with quite a few, mostly um, ex-RAF guys. One of them was uh, Kiwi Steph um, Popolo. Uh, I'll get the name right because there's two different, but Kowalski. Who, who was, he ended up after he was there flying with Rothman's team in the UK, right. and then he was test flying Tim Wallace's pits and was killed right, in yeah, a yeah. spin down. Yeah. But yeah, I went flying with him and a hunter up there. That was oh, great fun, yeah. Okay, yeah. cool. Oh, that was good. <laughs> there was lots of things. I never got in a mirage. I was, I was hoping to, but I never got in a mirage. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So yeah, it was, was yeah, there was plenty going on. And then once that tour was over, you come back to New Zealand? Yeah, I got posted back to uh, Wigram to CFS, and I thought the die is cast, they want me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that was the uh, beginning of 74. Just came back just in time for the Commonwealth Games in Christchurch. Okay. And um, had a um, K9 Philips tele coloured television. There were only two of them on Wigram. <laughs> the other one was George Oldfield. He brought one back from there as well. Right, right. So we were very popular. Yeah, okay. Um, but I, um, so yeah, I, I decided that I um, really had to try and get out of the Air Force and get into the airline. So, 
Well, before you got out, you were in the, at that time, you were in the Red Jackets team that never was, weren't you? Yeah, that was, um, that was at, um, when I was at CFS, and we'd worked up the team and then never did a show. I believe that the day you were meant to do the show at Tauranga, it got cancelled that morning or something, wasn't it? It's the oil uh, well, it must have been before that because we never we never went to Tauranga. Okay. okay. Yeah. I, I just I've seen a piece from the time that says that the defence minister had to get up in front of the air show and say the air force isn't coming, and there was a lot of booing. Oh, I don't know. Yeah. Could be right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, one of the guys who was in the team, Tony Menzies, he did a couple of solo displays, and I think that was about it. Okay. Yeah. But, yep. Um, yep. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that was disappointing, but anyway. Yeah. Politics. <laughs> but the thing is, you, you got that um, work up and practice, which would have led on to something like yeah, yeah, with yeah, the Warbirds. So. Yeah, yeah. You sort of had a. I mean, you did a lot of formation in the Air Force anyway. Uh, yeah. yeah and I did a lot of instructing on it, but. Uh, doing aerobatics is a different level altogether. Yeah, so with a team sort of thing, mm. isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So you, you got out about that time and went to NZ? Yeah, well, it, I was on a, what they called it, there were various all sorts of strange contracts. And I was on a 12 year commission from the time I started my wings course, yep. which would have meant I was going to be um, 32 by the time I got out. and. Um, uh, they, you know, they brought in a thing where, uh, for whatever reason, I don't know, that you could get out after, with three months notice, you could leave with 12 years total service or 20 years total service. And I suddenly thought, here's my out. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I applied and yeah, so I got out before I turned 30. Okay. Um, because at that stage, to go to the airlines, um, the old Air New Zealand, you had to have a thousand hours jet time, jet command. Oh, really? So it was much more important to have a thousand hours on a single seat jet than a guy who'd flown Hercules and Bristol freighters in a multi-crewed situation. Even yeah. um, they 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 had this thing about jet pilots. Okay. It was, so I could see, you know, with my I did a while I was at CFS. I did a um, a strike master for Mill with about twenty hours and. Um, I could see that wasn't going to count for much. No. <laughs> so uh, applied for NAC as it was in those days. Okay. And um, um, so yeah, I got, got onto the airline through there. But I, I went and drove trucks for six months waiting. Right, right. Um, <coughs> so at that stage, I guess, did you go into um, Viscounts with the NAC? Or? No, they, um, I think the Viscounts were just about gone. Okay. No, I went on to uh, the friendships. Friendships, yeah. yeah. So I did um, pretty much four years on friendships at, at uh, Christchurch. Yeah. But um, so that was '75, uh, end of '75. I joined them, and um, what was it? '78. The merger was effective, or '77? '78. '78. Yeah. And um, with that. Uh, the opportunity came up to go to Long Haul International because they weren't recruiting from the Air Force anymore. Okay, okay. And they had to take them from the airline. So um, <coughs> quite a few guys senior for me held back uh, for the DC-10, but I went on to the DC-8. Okay. And um, 
so that would have been 79, 79, 80. And it was quite a moment, uh, at that time was, there was a lot went on because I was on my DC-8 course on the Erebus. Two things happened, I uh, can't remember which was first, but the uh, DC-10 lost an engine up in, in Chicago, wasn't it? Yeah. And we had that worldwide grounding. Yes. And actually I was on the simulator phase when that happened, because we had to go on about three weeks or four weeks leave because they kicked us out of the simulator because they had to try and get people back up to speed to run the DC-8s. Uh, but also we had Erebus, which was I think just before that. Yeah, it was. Um, <coughs> and uh, also while I was on the course, we had a friendship crash at Mangaree here, oh, just on final, yep. went into the water. Yep, yep. So yeah, there was a bit of bad stuff going on. But I really enjoyed the DC-8. Uh, we operated that as a, um, you know, I was with guys like Nev Hay and, and uh, um, I'm just having a mental block now. Um, he passed away quite recently. Pittsman from way back. Oh, so well known. I'll think of his name. Oh, um, yeah, I know you mean. Um, yeah, um, yeah, I know exactly who you mean. I just yeah. can't think of his name. It'll come to me. Yeah, well, we, he and I, oh, God. Memories. Um, so we we um, ran the DC-8 as a, uh, while I was on it, the, it was in its last 12 or 15 months as a passenger aircraft, mostly out of Auckland, Wellington, across Tasman. Um, but um, at that stage, Air New Zealand opened up its services into Japan. So I was on the first flight into Japan for Air New Zealand with right. uh, Keith Walsh was the skipper, and Jared Ray was the other. We used to go through Nandy, so we'd pre-position to Nandy, and then one crew would bring the aircraft to Nandy, and then we'd go up there, sit 24 hours, come back. Yep. So I only did about four or five of those trips, and then they put the DC-10 onto it. Okay, yeah. Keith Trello was the name we're trying to think of. Yes. Um, and then, sort of after about 12, 15 months, they they were phasing out the DC-8 altogether, but they converted one to a freighter. So, um, um, NZD, Delta, I think it was. Yep. And um, so I was on that for another almost two years. Okay, on the freighter. On the freighter, and that was great fun, yeah. And we did the first freight run into, into Los Angeles with Keith Trello. Oh, right, okay. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah, um, and we, we would, the way the duty went, uh, we had a, we had a weekly schedule through to through to um, LA, so it would normally go. It would start in um, Melbourne, Christchurch, Wellington, Auckland, Honolulu, Los Angeles, uh, going up on a Friday night. We'd sit there for nearly 48 hours, and then come back the other way. Okay. And that was the bulk of its work. Right. And, and there were crews scattered all around the place, and the airplane just kept going. Right, yeah, gotcha, yeah. Yeah, and I went up there with Keith, and and um, he he was, as you probably know, big into NGs, and he, I think he had a TF. Anyway, he said, we're going to do a, we're going to, as he was familiar with LA, I, I wasn't. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> we shot up to Santa Barbara to Moss Motors. He was going to buy this um, interior upholstery kit for it, yeah. which he bought, brought it back, 
got it home, found it was made in Palmerston North. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he eventually used it, but he said he sat there for several years before he got round to using it. But, uh, yeah. Keith. <coughs> so, um, uh, yeah, I did that time on the DC8, on the um, DC8, and then um, from there, uh, there was a bit of reshuffling going on with seniority, and I got bumped off and and um, went on the 737, which I hadn't flown at that stage. Okay. Um, and that was only for a few months um, before a um, um, friendship command came up. Okay. So. Um, I'd been in the airline pretty near 10 years by that stage. Yep. Uh, did that for a couple of years and then we got our first 767s. And so I applied for the first officer's position on that. And um, was on that for nearly about three, three years. I think. That was great fun. Um, I was on the first first course they ran in New Zealand. They'd run a couple of courses in the States for the initial cruise, and then we were on the first one in New Zealand. Um, and of course it was the first glass cockpit aircraft, yeah. and, and everybody was fumbling with them a bit. And uh, if, it, if it all got too difficult, you used to just un unhook the auto automatics and fly it like a normal aeroplane. <laughs> <laughs> the most commonly heard expression was, what the fuck's it doing now? <laughs> Yeah, but it was good fun. I, I loved the 76. In fact, I, I ended up flying it for nearly 14 years okay. out of 30 years in the airlines. Wow. That's amazing. Um, do you want me just to, to carry on along that vein? Yeah, um, if we finish your career and then we'll go back to the warbirds. Oh, okay. Yeah, well, then um, I, I'm trying to get the sequence right because you keep jumping seats in the airline. Uh, so I came back off the 76 into a. Oh, Captain on the 73. Oh, yeah. Uh, did that, for, I think, for about two years. Did a bit of instructing on it and checking. Um, and that was just, I never did any of the regional stuff at all, actually. I didn't apply for it. I'm just doing the normal domestic routes. Yeah. Um, up to five sectors a day. So it was quite busy. Yeah. And um, <coughs> then um, went back on the. What did I do then? I must have been at that stage. I applied for the 74200 okay. as a first officer, and ended up flying with some of the guys I'd flown with on the DCA. Uh, and um, and that was the only time I ever flew with. Oh, the DCA we flew with some flight engineers, obviously, but then uh, 74200. So I was on that for a couple of years. Um, did a basing in LA for three months. That was the main reason I applied for it. Okay. <laughs> I had to do one of those basings. I don't know where you, you probably know about how they work, but basically you were you were there for about three months, and um, we used to do the runs through to London to uh, Gatwick at that stage, and also Frankfurt, okay. and also go down to Tahiti. Yep. That was about it. Um, that was good fun. So you'd only been there for a sort of a short contract and then come back again? Sort of thing, yeah. Well, they used to rotate the crews through there, so you, I think it was a three-month basing normally. Yeah. Just so everybody got a turn at it? Yeah, and also, um, it was, I think, also because there was no simulators, you couldn't do, you'd have to bring crews back to New Zealand to, right. uh, you know, their 
manual checks and all that stuff. So you had to have all your simulated stuff up to speed before you went everything, and then you'd do the three months to come back. But a lot of crews, particularly the flight engineers and, and a lot of pilots who'd been long all international all their careers, they, they, a lot of them did half a dozen or more basings up there. They'd do those as many as they could. Right, right. But did the airline have houses up there for people? No, they, they had apartments at Marina Del Rey okay. in, the, in this apartment complex. Yep. So uh, what did we have? We must have had uh, half a dozen crews there, I guess. Okay. From memory, I'm not sure. And um, yeah, no, that was good. I, I, because um, you, you, you get to London, you'd have um, uh, not quite forty-eight hours there. Okay. Um, apart from dealing with the, t wasn't so bad out of LA doing all the time change, but you could shoot off to nice places like Duxford and yep. wherever. Yeah. Uh, I was up there during the winter, mind you, so there weren't any. Um, and um, what else happened up there? On the oh, you went out to Chino oh, yeah. times. Yeah. Um, and then um, I uh, straight off that, straight off that, almost straight off that basing, I was kind of going to get a command on the seven six seven. Okay. Um, just. Uh, coincidentally, at that time, um, while I was away in in LA uh, on the basing, because um, it was summer here, winter up there, but um, they were working up the Roaring Forties team again, yep. and Keith was leading it, and so they were rejigging it so that when I came back, I was going to do the solo and John Green Street move into my number four position, and it was the first practice I was involved with here that. We had the mid-air collision. That's just the by the way. So. Um, <coughs> yeah, so I came back, went on to the seven six, and then I was on on that for the ten ten years or more. Okay. Um, and that was great machine. We did had a great route structure. No long trips. The longest trips were sort of three days away, really. You know, up to a lot of our flights was we go to. Say Asia, Japan, or Singapore, or somewhere. Day flight up, have a night there. Following night, come back. So you're you're only away for two nights, yep. really. Yep. And got a lot of flying in it. You know, it was it was good. Okay. And then I I could have gone on the 400 a bit earlier, but I I decided I was going to leave when I turned 60, regardless. Yep. Even though there were, you know, I, <laughs> I was worried they were going to extend the extend the age limit yeah. because I didn't really want to carry on forever in a day. Yeah, yeah. And um, then the 9-11 um, thing happened which changed all the thinking around that. Right. And it was starting to actually get back to extending it about the time I left. But when I was 58 I was, I'd made the decision to go. Yeah. So I went on, the, for the last two years went on the 400, which was a lovely airplane but again it was, the route structure wasn't of great appeal. Great flying LA London, but the <coughs> I didn't have any. I didn't particularly enjoy the the long Pacific League. It was kind of boring. Boring, yeah. 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 yeah over the, over flying over to Europe was was much more interesting. Yeah. Mm. Okay. So I left in um, June June seven um, two thousand five. Okay. Yeah. yeah.
by by that stage we we'd shifted to Wanaka in 2004 was commuting out of there so die was cast <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah so that was that was that so did you go on to any other commercial flying after you retired from New Zealand? Um, well, I've, I've, it's because I've, I've flown choppers in the Air Force and um, I knew the Wallaces really well and yeah. uh, moved to Wanaka and then Toby uh, had started, you know, had bought Tim's old HOT and, yeah. and was operating again and, and uh, he didn't like doing the tourist stuff so I'd only been down there a few months, or it was a few months after I'd finished with the New Zealand. He said to me, um, um, but I didn't have any uh, civil license. So he said, "Give yourself a license. I'll give you a bit of work." Okay. So I ended up working for him for a couple of summers, and um, I was doing about a hundred hours each summer in the five hundred, carrying people through to Milford and places like that. Right. And then. Um, Choppy Patterson, who you'd probably know of, no. Louisa Patterson, she's oh, right, yeah, yeah. over the top helicopters. Yes, yep. Yeah, she, uh, I ended up doing a bit of work for her, for one, because uh, at this stage Nick Wallace was starting to come back into the picture and work for Toby, and so my position disappeared really. Right. Um, did a bit of work for her, and, um, and then there's a guy, Bob Robertson, who was. Um, He's passed away about six years ago now, but he um, was a property developer based in Wanaka, and, but he was doing this big development just north of Christchurch at mm-hmm. Pegasus. Yes, yeah, yeah. And he had his own squirrel, which was run by for him by Simon Spencer Bauer, but he wanted his own sort of dedicated pilot. So he asked me if I'd run it for him, and so I ended up doing that for about right, six okay. years. Okay. And that was about 200 hours a year flying. We did a lot of regular stuff to Christchurch but also he had he was big into hunting and fishing and stuff and we used to do some awesome trips down to Fiordland and it was boy's own paradise really. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's real good flying country down there for helicopters, isn't it? Oh, it's just, yeah. So I still keep current um, I'm not doing any commercial helicopter work now. Um, well, I haven't done for a few years but um, Bill Day who you may know of, he's got a BO one oh five down there. Okay, yeah. Um, he uh, he allows me to fly that for very reasonable rates. Um, I must go back and do one. I haven't flown for a wee while. Okay. Yeah, if it's got people want to go for a trip up into the mountains or something, yeah. Do you do any um, fixed wing uh, recreational type flying? Or? Yeah. Well, um, I've still I've still got a, a instrument rating. I about the time I finished with uh, Bob Robertson's machine. Um, a guy down there who's got, they've got a f- four or five hotels, um, bought a Cirrus. He rang me up one day and he said, look, I've heard that if I bought a Cirrus, there's no one around who could fly at IFR. Would that be correct? And I said, well, not entirely. <laughs> <laughs> I ended up with a job. All right. <laughs> flying his Cirrus IFR, which was a real baptism of fire because there's no training system for it. <laughs> oh, right. It's all teach yourself stuff. Eh? Right, right. And, um, Anyway, that was interesting, but he, and then um, we, did, we, did, we did that for a wee while, but then he, he sold it, bought us an um, EC-120. I'd, I'd taught his son to fly it, and then he, he flew around BFR, he didn't do it by IFR. 
it's always a bit of a problem I've found down there because you, you, with no anti-icing, you've got to pick your weather. You know. But it was, it was very useful, particularly going to Christchurch. And we used to go to Greymouth in Christchurch mainly. But there's another guy who's got a really nice um, Seneca. You probably know the airplane. It used to be based in Taupo. Um, I forget the guy's name. He was an older chap. Had it. Seneca 5, anyway. Um, and um, Andy was flying it around BFR, and he intended to get his instrument rating, but he's a, he's a consulting engineer, and, and he just hasn't had time to... So actually, for the last three years, I've been training him en route between... Know, places like Christchurch and Nelson mainly. Yeah, yeah. We, we do one or two trips a month. Yeah. So I still do that. Cool. Um, keeps me in the game, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So let's step back now. Um, New Zealand Warbirds formed in the end of the 1970s. Um, when did you actually get into it? Uh, I better consult my notes. <laughs> I had to go through my. Um, it would have been 80, 81, I think. Okay, so fairly early on, because I think it was 78 that it was. Yeah, yeah. I, I, um, as I say, I shifted up from Christchurch to Auckland when I went on to the DCA, which was in 79. Mm -hmm. We were living on the North Shore, and I know we then shifted out near Pukekohe, um and that would have been in 80... 81? Yep. So it'd be 80, 82 probably I bought. Um, one of the neighbours, Gary Wright, he ex-Air Force guy, but he, he said, oh, are you interested in joining this Harvard syndicate? I said, no! I swore I'd never ever get back in one <laughs> after doing, I don't know, a thousand plus hours instructing. Yes, yeah. And I had to thought, think about it in the following day. I said, yeah, that's not a bad idea. <laughs> so that, that began the whole thing. Okay. And they were 65? 65. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Um, and uh, the. Um, oh, it was 84 by the time of that. Okay. 1984. Yeah, I did a check ride with Trevor Bland. I just went through my logbooks and. Yeah. Um, I did my first flight in, yeah, 84. And then took my wife up for a ride the next day. <laughs> yeah. Um, <clears throat> so then uh, there was the old little air show thing. I remember going over to Fenerpai and watching the it was old Annie Thompson and Trevor Bland and and um, um, John um, Denton. Yes. And they were flogging around, and it looked bloody awful. <laughs> quite frankly, <laughs> it looked hairy. <laughs> So I had Ernie leading it, and um, you know, as you probably know, you always put your most experienced guy on the front normally. Yeah. And uh, uh, this was the other way around, you know, because right. he couldn't fly formation. Oh right, right, right. Yeah. yeah. Um, but anyway, the, yeah. so um, and I really kind of got more involved when um, uh, Ross Ewing was in '65 and. Um, we, we did, uh, yeah, I got involved with the odd fly past and things, and then I think we just started to um, get a more disciplined team going. Mm -hmm. Yep. So, when you say that, were you pretty much one of the originators of the Roaring Forties then? Were you 
Pretty much. Yeah. I, I wouldn't say I was originated, but um, I was. I started out as um, number three with them. Yeah. You know, uh, there was Ross leading. Myself, who's number two? No, I'm not sure. Those first ones, because buried a bit. Yeah. I'm pretty sure Keith was sort of number, number four or solo. Yeah, I don't think Trevor flew with us then because he was usually doing the Mustang. Yeah. First formation practice, the Harvard team in 87. Okay. And then we went to Christchurch, did the pilot race that year, showed it was been a bit on it better than. Yep. With, yep. Yeah, that was in 87. Right. Did a, and I thought, this is highly dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was yeah. actually. You know, wasn't wasn't um, yeah. In the hockey year show that year, and then the following year, Warbeard's on parade, and that was the all started. That's the beginning of Wanaka's yeah. reign as an issue capital. Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. So um, Wanaka. Uh, People who don't really know, this that's a major air show it's every two years, and for many years you've been um, the air show director, haven't you? You've been uh, well. The title was display planner. It became that. I basically wrote the flying program, yeah. and and then basically that was handed over to the display director, who I I use the analogy of. I was kind of the composer, and the display director was the conductor. Right. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's, it's changed quite a bit in the last few years because health and safety and all that stuff that goes on. It's become. I you know I, I would I would I would fly several times during the day as well as, but I, I could keep an idea on the whole program. Yeah. And talk to them and yeah. stuff. And, um, it's probably still much the same. So I've managed uh, just, I've been trying to get someone to take over the role for some time. Yeah. It's not that easy. And, uh, I fe I'd feel comfortable to get the right person, obviously. And Mandy Deans came to me about three or four air shows back after the show, or a few days later, and said, are you on for the next one? I said, no, um, I've done my dot. Yeah. And she said, well, who are we going to get? I said, you'll find someone. <laughs> about three weeks later, she couldn't, she said, oh, can't find anyone. <laughs> I said, Mandy, look, if I was dead, you'd find someone, just pretend I'm dead. <laughs> <laughs> but that didn't work. <laughs> oh, there were a few things going on with one or two personnel down there that was, it wasn't a particularly happy environment. And, um, but that changed and they've been, you know, the last three or four shows have been really great to work with. So, but as you probably know, Andy Love has taken over. Yes. And, um, you know, he'll be good. Yeah. Uh, he doesn't have that sort of warbird background to the same extent, but um, he'll, you know, so I'm sort of mentoring him through that. Yeah. He's very enthusiastic. He's very enthusiastic. Yeah, he'll be good. Um, yeah, and that kind of evolved. Uh, when I was up here with warbirds, I, I was what they called the air show coordinator in those days. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, if, if 
they want an Esha, or Napier, or Wanaka, or whatever, that instead of dealing with each individual syndicate, um, I kind of negotiated with them to get an overall costing and, yes. and try and keep the syndicates happy. Yep. So that was my first part. And so when we started at Wanaka, um, you know, it was basically Tim and Gavin Johnson. Um, and Tim was full of amazing ideas, of course. Yeah. <laughs> so with myself and Skilly and Go, we had to kind of make that work as safely as we could yeah. and have a lot of fun at the same time. Yeah. Blowing up things and... <laughs> yeah. No. So uh, that's how the, the sort of planning the display flying evolved, really. Yeah. And of course, Tim kept importing new aircraft every few months. It was just the oh, golden yeah. era, wasn't it? It was, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, he, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, it was, it was amazing, really, when you think back on it now. And uh, it all happened very quickly. And Tim wasn't someone to muck around. And so you got the opportunity to fly some of the fighters. Uh, yeah. yeah, well that kind of started um, initially. You know, he'd he'd um, he bought the Mustang, which he couldn't fly anyway, yeah. and um, Gavin, um, Trevor flew that. Um, and he'd actually, I don't really know, he'd actually bought done a deal with with um, uh, I think it was. Um, What's his name from Flying Legends? Oh, Stephen Gray. Stephen, yeah. to buy a Mish 109. Mm. And, and um, then he got, there was some big business issues which had a severe financial impact and he had to basically walk away from the deal. Yeah. And then quickly he got himself back on his feet. It was all to do with valuation of, of, of livestock valuations. Yeah. <coughs> and um, next thing he bought Mustang and um, again, couldn't fly. So the first airplane he could fly was Spitfire because yes. of the stirrups. Uh, um, he bought the Corsair and Keith went to the States for the cost and they shipped it back. So he and Tom checked out on that. And then he, we were doing an air show down in New Plymouth. We heard he bought this, well, we knew he had the P-40 and it was being rebuilt with the yes. Mark Green down there. And we heard that, um, um, that this Air Force guy was going to fly it. And he's just. You know, another name's escaped my brain for the moment. Uh, that'd be Phil. Uh, Phil, Phil. Phil Murray. Yeah. Phil Murray. And we said, who's Phil Murray? Anyway, Phil had done top dressing before he got on the Air Force. Yeah. Anyway, Phil had blotted his copybook a wee bit, and Tim asked me to test fly it. Well, I know about P40s. <laughs> 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 I was like, yeah, sure, but. <laughs> yeah. So, um, uh, what actually happened, of course, you probably know, is that, was it 92? Anyway, the, um, it wasn't ready to fly until right up to the show, and yep. by the stage, Mark had arrived, and so fortunately he, he flew it. And, um, On the morning of the fir first that day That was the first show, flight, yeah. yeah. And, um, Incredible. And then, um, so we waited till after the show, and, and uh, checked me out, and checked Phil out. So that was really my first heavy warbird, if you like. Right. Other than um, so it was pretty neat. Yeah. yeah. And that led on to a lot of other things from there on. Uh, <coughs> uh, 
market said, oh, you must come over and fly in Europe. And I, I kind of thought, oh, yeah, well, that's very nice for him to say that, but uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, don't, I don't go chasing after these things. And then uh, uh, there was an article in the New Zealand Wings magazine of him flying the P-40, and somewhere towards the end he said, oh, Keen for people like myself to come over and fly a ducks. Are you serious? Are you serious? <laughs> so um, that led, led to my first trip over there sometime later. Um, yeah, but that era with Tim was so, uh, as far as his collection, I, fl I flew as um, the old Birdcage Corsair quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, I never flew his Mustang when he had it, but um, in fact, the Mustang's one of the aircraft I've only ever flown twice. Okay. Um, and um, uh, later on, flew Spitfire and Hurricane. Never flew the Avenger, although Tim said, "Oh, you can all fly that." You know, <laughs> but actually, you know, it's a bit more to the Avenger than just say you all jump in and fly it. Yeah. And then, oh, you know, the Polycarp Ops and. So, yeah. Did you fly the Yak-3? Yeah, well, I did some of the test flying on, not his one. Okay. Um, um, Grant Bissett did the test flying on that, and, and, and um, Simon did a bit on it. Uh, flew it a few times. Yeah. Um, but it didn't fly that much, actually, from memory, and then, because it came fairly late in the piece. Yeah, it did. Um, yeah. So tell me about the Polycarpovs, what were they like to fly? They were a love-hate thing. You'd love to go and fly them, but then you had to land them. <laughs> <laughs> um, they, were, they were a great aeroplane, actually. Uh, and um, So when they first, they came, they arrived in dribs and drabs, mm. and, and um, we, when I say we, there was... Uh, Keith Skilling, myself, Steve Taylor, Tom Middleton, I don't know if Tom, he mainly flew the 153, um, John Peterson, and we, we all sort of got involved in the test flying, because yep. they had to do a certain amount, and um, <coughs> uh, you know, there were so many things about them, we had no, because um, they were an open cockpit, but they seemed to blow dust and things around, so we ended up with bone domes, usually flying with ski goggles to yeah. try and, because the, the sort of uh, sliding visors didn't work terribly well. And, um, and around that time, um, Ivan Campbell started, because after Tim had had his accident, he started developing those Campbell head um, helmets. So we got involved, he, he started working with us on. So I've still got, I've got helmet number five, I think it is. Skilling might have number one, I'm not sure. Right. So yeah, I've been upgraded a bit since then. But, so they were a big improvement, they made it a lot quieter. Um, but the, in terms of flying, they were, they were really quite different to most of the other tailwheel aircraft. There was two major differences, well, at least two. They had no electrics, apart from a battery for the radio and the, you know, and the Initial starter. Um, no flaps, 
the undercarriage had to be wound up and down by hand. And they had this thousand horsepower engine sitting just in front of you, so straight in on final, you cannot see the airfield. Yeah. So the technique for landing um, or the approach was definitely different. Um, curved approach right down to flare, basically. Um, and um, one of the other real curiosities, you know, for someone who's learned to fly on a tail dragger, um, is the pilot's notes were converted, uh, translated from Russian. And one of the things that strikes you when you read them is, after landing, do not hold the stick back, hard back, otherwise you will lose directional control, which is the abs absolute opposite of what you normally do. Yeah. Um, and the reason for that is is the um, the tail wheel, which is really just a, a skid with a little hard wheel on it, has got steering on it through the rudder pedals, but it goes through these springs. So if you put a lot of weight on the tail, and you move the rudder pedals, all it does is stretch the springs. It doesn't actually move the tail wheel. Oh, okay. It might move the rudder, but it won't move the tail wheel. Yep. So, um, you could you could hold the stick back, and you, as soon as you moved it forward, you'd get much better yep. control. You held it neutral. Yep. Um, landing technique uh, was interesting too, and the guys who were best suited to it, as we found out, were guys like Steve Taylor, who had a lot of pitch time. And I remember him saying quite early on, he said, "I reckon we should be wheeling these airplanes because we're always trying a three-point." And you come in, and you think you're just in the right attitude, and you touch down. Next thing, you're wobbling along like yep. this. Yep. And the reason for it was the, the main gear had this long travel oleo on it and the tail wheel was hard. So if you touched down on three points, you'd immediately, the main oleos would compress and they'd just set up this, and you just sat there and rode it out. There was no point in doing anything about it. Um, and I think I only ever got what I'd call an absolute greaser where I didn't really feel it go on in a three point. And it must have touched on the main and sank down and the tail sank down and it must have <laughs> but, but um, I yeah, know there was a couple of occasions where people got prop strikes, Mark Hanna got one once and just this is bobbling thing, yep. um, not bad ones but you know, yep. um, and it was, it was um, sometime quite a time later that um, we were in 2000, we were going to. Uh, Ray McQueen had done this uh, deal to take three of them to the States to do a show at the um, at Midland and and down in Houston. Yep. So we um, decided to train up. It was uh, myself, Steve Taylor, and um, Tom Middleton. So so we we'd never flown cross country and we'd never landed them on seal. Right. At that stage, yeah, and we knew all the runways in the, in the states were going to be concrete. Yeah, there's no grass. Maybe. So Steve and I went down to Wanaka and um, started working up. We hadn't done any formation aerobatics, but they they were great. They were actually fine to fly in formation aerobatics. But um, uh, we started really doing much more of the wheeler type landings, and found out the best technique was actually to fly it on on the mains hold the tail wheel up as long as possible until you couldn't hold any more, let that down and by that stage it was all, you could see better. Yeah. Um, trying to land it on three points, um, 
was fine, but it, it, it was more problematic than, than on the wheels. Interesting. Um, yeah, uh, one of the other things is you, <laughs> you had to be careful lowering the gear. Mark Hannah broke his finger on, if you, because I think it was, it was about 48 wines to wind it up. Yeah. But when you wound it down, you had to hold on the handle and not let it go. And he actually, you had it like this. The next thing, he, he it slipped out of his hand and whooped round it. And, um, yeah, very painful. So, um, did you fly the 1.3 as well as the 16? Not generally, but I had a couple of flights in it. Were they similar to flight? Not really. Okay. Um, no, the, the 1.3, uh, because of the biplane, it was was quite top heavy, like, you know, the weight Tiger Moth, really. Yeah. And um, so you, you, you had, you couldn't handle crosswind as well. Yep. Um, it was. I think the top speed was slightly faster than the I-16 from memory. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, it was nice to fly, and it had actually had a hydraulic system for raising own gear. Oh, right. um, so yeah, it was a bit more modern. Yeah. <laughs> well, it came after the I-16. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, but yeah, I, did, I didn't actually do. I probably only did two or three flights in it, and um, I. <laughs> We we uh, we we uh, had this display routine we did in uh, in the states. It was a sort of formation aerobatic thing, um, with the um, I sixteen leading, uh, the one five three leading. Yeah. Do a few manoeuvres, then we kind of do a coordinated thing from memory. But um, uh, we so we did that at Midland, and um, I don't really know the the, the aircraft was shipped the. Galveston, then by road up to Midland, and um, Midland's at 5,000 feet above sea level. In October, average daily temperature about 80 degrees Fahrenheit. So we had a, we had a density altitude of about 9,000 feet, wow. and we're thinking, how are these things going to perform? Um, they actually performed fine. The only thing was the oil temperatures were, were running about 110 degrees, very high, but. Ray said they're modern oils, there's no problem, which it wasn't. But um, in the in the few days before the show, uh, you could see on the weather map there was this cold mass of air coming down the centre of the States. For the actual um, two days of the show, it never went above about 50. It was freezing. Wow. And we only had summer gear, so they... It's going to come right past. So they lent us, they lent us um, all this, all this uh, leather jackets and stuff and one of the guys was, used to import these bomber jackets and he said, oh you keep it, you keep it, still got it. Yeah. Okay. He, he was a guy who flew the, B, the um, B-29. Oh right. Yeah, unfortunately he was killed in an accident a few weeks later. But, um, and we, f and we flew down to Midland anyway, I won't carry on about the, them too long, but one of my enduring memories at Midland, they had a, um, a German um, 
um, a bomber, the um, the one with the birdcage uh, cockpit on it. I remember diving, 20 inch bomber that they used. It. What was it? Uh, uh, the Heinkel. Heinkel. Yeah. And we had to, we were defending the airfield. I remember Tom was leading it and he rolled in on this thing. Um, and um, no, it was John Lennon by that stage. Yeah. Tom had gone home. Yeah, and, and anyway, I can remember we had a, a, a V&E of whatever it was on there, and I was way through it, going near vertical, diving down on this Heinkel bomber, and I could you know, see the pilot's heads. It was like, it was like the Battle of Britain. Right. <laughs> yeah. But, um, no, the pollies were great fun. Can you tell me a little bit about what you were flying uh, over with Old Flying Machine Company with Ray and Mark? Oh, yeah, well, the um, first time I went across there uh, was in about 93. There you go. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, Mark, I'd be in touch with Mark, and he said, Oh, hey, come across to the Duckford show. And then, then they got a message from him a little bit, a week or two later, I had to leave. And I, he said, if you've got enough leave and stay an extra week, we've got to do a show up in Denmark. Uh, I said, oh, yeah, okay, I'll do that. Yep, yep. <laughs> so, get over there, go to Duxford, and um, and I flew um, the Corsair. Yep, um, okay. You know, five, six, four, eight. Um, and um, so it was a two day thing, and, um, and it was great. Did a bit of air to air stuff with Phil McKenna and whatnot. Um, and I, before I'd got there, I thought he'd said though to Denmark they want to take the Spitfire, Messerschmitt, and the T thirty three. I thought oh, they won't put me in the jet. They won't put me in the Messerschmitt. I better read some Spitfire notes. <laughs> <laughs> and this is the way they operate, you know. <laughs> so I never flown a Spitfire. So. Um, we did the Duxford show and that, that went fine. And it, was, it, was, it was fantastic weather. It was, it was you know, I, I flew, uh, I had a fly of the Yak 50 while I was there. And then, okay. um, yeah, it was just magic stuff, you know. And then um, I think on the Monday or Tuesday, Ray and Mark were in the office saying, oh, um, all right, we better get organised for this Denmark thing. And, um, uh, oh, what are we going to do? Oh, yeah, it was like that. Yeah. Oh, we better get Sean checked out in the Spitfire. So it was getting a bit of mate. So I think it was the next day, the Wednesday afternoon, um, finally was ready. And so he gave me a briefing, and basically I, I got airborne. They used to talk about going out of the back, which is like going to the training. You would just go over the back there, yeah. do a bit of flying, and then I came back over the airfield and did 10 minutes low level aerobatics. <laughs> you know? And um, it, was, it, was, it was really. I mean, the Spitfires are a very simple aeroplane to operate, and, and it was great. So, um, following day, uh, he and I, he was in the mission. Um, we headed off for um, for Roskilde in Denmark. Okay. Uh, so we we had to fly down to. Um, on airfield just down to the southeast because those days you started to clear customs right. and um, it's the airfield they used to operate the old 
Carbiers and Bristol Freighters from across the channel. If you name that. Funnily enough, while we were there, Dave Phillips was on holiday, needed to go to the loo, went and, and oh, his wife took the kids in the loo, and she said, You better go out there, there's a, couple of, there's a Spitfire or something out there. And he walked in. <laughs> anyway, we, we went and did this uh, across the channel to Cape Winnow, beat up Calais on the way past Airfield, and then refueled up in Holland at Groningen and then up to Roskilde, which is just near Copenhagen. Yep. Um, and um, Ray met us up there um, and he flew. We did a you know, dogfight thing. Yep. Um, and uh, Mark was flying the T33. Um, and there was um, Lars Nest, you know Lars? Well, you know, I don't know, no, I, I know of them, yeah. Yeah, well they, they, they were kind of running the show, the Norwegian historic flight, and he had his Mustang and Hart and stuff there, so um, I ended up, uh, there was a bridge opening, they wanted to fly past, so uh, we did that with the, with, um, no, Lars Nest was flying for the Norwegian historic flight. Um, Anders Sather was, was the owner of the aeroplane, so there would be 25 Mustang and Spitfire, and we did this fly past over Copenhagen and then over this bridge was opening, and then got back on the ground. And Anders said to Ray, I, you, you need to go and fly my Mustang. And so Anders went off, uh, Ray went off and had a fly of it and, and um, came back, and then Anders said to me, Oh, he said, You go and fly it. I said, I've never flown a Mustang. He said, I know. <laughs> So give Mark the brief you and so I was okay. <laughs> that was it, go fly a Mustang. Wow. You know. And um, and then they wanted to display in a Harvard, so I ended up doing a display in his Harvard as well at the show. And um, then um, I we took went back to the UK with Ray. Yep. Uh, he was flying the Messerschmitt on the way back. Um, and then I, I I went over there two or three times. Uh, did a show in, I only did a couple of times at Duxford. Um, yeah, did uh, one in Belgium with the, with the Corsair. And I'd never flown a Fury, but Ray talked about it, so I ended up flying that back from Belgium to Duxford. Okay. And, fly that. and um, subsequently flew. The only other type I flew one was that one that used to be here when it went over to Australia. Yes, yep. I flew that several years later over at Banks, at, um, up in uh, Brisbane. Okay. Uh, I won't, you know, one of the fascinating trips I did with Mark, we went to um, a place called Bath, B-A-R-T-H, over in the, near Rostock, over in the old East German side, yep. and it was about five years after the war, war came down, so I was in the Corsair and he was in the Spitfire, and it was a sh show run by um, this German couple, and Piggy, who was out here, with the, she and her husband at that time, yep. so I first met them there, but we did this show and went back to the UK, and I was then going to Oshkosh, meeting, meeting She's here in the car over there, but um, it was just at the time, it was the 
we're going to Oshkosh for his 50th anniversary of breaking the sound barrier. And it was a quite a coincidence in that when Mark and I got back to to Cambridge, I was staying with him. He had he had this book by Bob Hoover, which he put his Forever Flying, and it had just come out. And he said, oh, look, have a look at this. He said, we've just been to Bath. Now, Bath was where Stalag 1 was. Right. And that's where Hoover was in pris prisoner of war and escaped from at the end. Yes, yep. And I, I read a couple of passages and I said, oh. And uh, it was a real coincidence. Then I went to Oshkosh. Last day I was there, I thought, I must go and have a look through the, try and see if I'd heard Bob Hoover had a stand there. Okay. And um, in the commercial, you've been to Oshkosh? I haven't, yeah. unfortunately. And, and I hadn't, you know, so, and I, f I found his stand and he had Bob Hoover sitting there, no, no one with him. And I wanted to buy his book, and um, he'd run out of books. And I had a long chapter, but he had this die cast model of Old Yellow, his Mustang. So I bought that. It's all signed, and it's seeing my thing, and that was fascinating. But it was just such a coincidence that he, you know, I'd been to Bath just a week before him. Yeah, that's amazing. Huh. Yeah. So that was a great trip. And the other one that was really stands out was. Um, was um, the trip we did to, um, there was a, a show in a place called Beck's in Switzerland near La Sun, yep. and then went from there to Warsaw. Okay. Um, and I took the Spitfire over, raided most of the display flying, I did a little bit, it was a very short grass trip in a valley. Yep. Uh, we were based around the corner in a place called Sion, and then um, so that that was there was fifty thousand people at this tiny little aero club thing, and they had the Normandy Neiman there. It was a, the, the, the French guys who'd flown in Russia. Okay. Uh, yep. And we met quite a, one of them had been a test pilot in Concord and stuff like that. Oh wow! Fascinating time. Yeah. And then um, Cliff Spink and I, he was flying the Messerschmitt. We flew all the way through to. Well, we went to a place called um, Baltz and up near Dresden on the first day, refueled and. Um, Olsberg, which is near Munich, yep. which is where they built Messerschmitts. Yes, yeah. Uh, we'd had the swastika painted off the airplane, you're not allowed swastika in Germany. Yeah. But that was fascinating. And then through the belts and stayed there the night, and then we had to fly this particular corridor in through to Warsaw. It was the 80th anniversary of the Polish Air Force. Oh, right. And um, Mark, I stayed there with the British Air Defence Attaché because Mark was going back to. He shot back to England to pick up um, T-33, I think. No, Hunter, sorry, Hunter. Yep. And um, I had to go to the Polish headquarters for a briefing on, because they wanted this fly pass. And so I go in there, and it, it was, as I say, it was it was still in the old communist type days in the sense that the, even though the war was down about five or six years, they still, worked on the same thing and no one would make a decision except the top five. You know? yeah, yeah. Anyway, we ended up in this briefing room and they talk about various things and this colonel saying there's, there's a big avenue from the airport right into the middle of the city and part way in there's this big roundabout with this pilot memorial, which is about five stories high, a pilot pointing at the sky or something. Okay. And you got to fly down, he said, I want you to fly down and over the top at 12 o'clock 
And I said, that's fine. And it's about a six lane highway with apartment buildings either side. And um, then he said, do not fly above 100 meters. And I said, not above 100 meters. Do not fly above 100 meters. We have three MiG-29s coming through at 200 meters. <laughs> I said, okay. <laughs> you know, I said, do you want the, the hunter as well? Yes, yeah, the hunter. So when Mark arrived, I said, we've got to, we can not let it fly. <laughs> so I did in the slip. I went down this, I can still remember the apartments flashing part, down on the deck, <laughs> straight across the top, Mark's behind me. And um, you know, this downtown Warsaw in front did a did a three uh, uh, big turn around, went across the second time, pulled the nose up, rolled, went back to the airport. We were just landing when the MiG twenty. They were ten minutes. He didn't tell me they were ten minutes behind us. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> so that was that was quite exciting. And then that afternoon we we flew down to the big Air Force base at Dublin, where the where the um, actual air show was. Yep. That was two days. I've never seen so many people. Peasants, um, Polish peasants just coming out of the countryside. Um, probably two or three hundred thousand. It was fascinating. Wow. So Cliff Spink and I did the air to air thing, you know, the shot down the Messerschmitt again. Yeah. And then uh, came home. Brilliant. It was it was brilliant, yeah. yeah. Well, you got some great memories, John. Yeah, no, I've been fortunate. I mean, the LA nine was a good episode. That was a, that was a, great airplane. Yeah, and it'd be great to see that back here, but it won't happen. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Had a bit of fun in that. Um, I don't know if there's anything else that's. I just made some notes there. Those. I know we've both got to go, so we probably yep. should end it there. But yeah, well, if there's anything you need to fill in, just let me know. And I'll yeah, no, that's uh, fantastic. Thank you very much indeed. My pleasure. I think it's great what you're doing too. It's sort of a lot of this stuff. Not that anything I do is that, but you know, I think about all the guys who who um, come down to Wanaka and they were, you know the old World War Two guys. Yeah. And um, they're all gone now, pretty exactly, much. Exactly. Yeah, they're all gone. And, um, yeah. No. All Thanks, I appreciate it. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.